0: Welcome to One of 200, the New Zealand and International Politics podcast. I've got Justine co-hosting with me this afternoon, and we have a special guest as well, uh, educator and mental health worker, Ross. Welcome to the cast, Ross.
1: Kia everyone. Pleasure to be here.
2: Hello. Pleasure to have you here.
1: Can I say it's, it's lovely as a trans person to be invited to uh, actually talk about trans issues. I'm so used to having cis people doing it for me. Not sure what it's gonna be like.
0: Oh well, hopefully uh, hopefully good.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> how will I how will I manage to speak for myself? How, you know, this is this is uncharted territory, but yeah, oh. it's it's really good to be invited on.
0: <laughs> well, um we'll give you some verbal step ladders uh, in case you're just struggling uh, to get there. <laughs> and we
2: have we have allies just um on the sidelines ready to come in and, and speak Thanks. for you if need Thanks. be.
1: Thank goodness for
2: that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. Thank you so much for, for reaching out um, and, and asking me to DM and, and see what we could organise here because I, I, I don't know. I, as you've said, um, you know, online and, and in our chats just before we, we kicked off, trans trans people are in a really difficult space right now uh, and that's understating it. Uh, and in places like the UK and especially with some of that stuff Kind of making the the journey uh, down to the down to the colonies here in New Zealand. It's not always safe for for trans people to be like speaking out and and putting themselves at risk. So yeah, I really appreciate uh, that you reached out and are, and are happy to to come and chat with us about it because it is important. Mm. Yeah, and you know, I people who don't have those experiences can take you know in, inverted commas the, the right stance on these things, but. We're, without having that direct experience of it, I, I don't think we can really grasp just what it's like. So,
1: Yeah, and I think it becomes a bit of a, a feedback loop whereby trans people are refusing to engage with the media in general because we very rarely get a fair shake and there's been lots of occasions where a trans person has gone on to a TV show or been interviewed in print in good faith there has been someone who's had a very transphobic stance who's been there I and mean, they might not have been told beforehand and it's it's not ended well. So trans people tend to be less inclined to go on these things, therefore they're less visible, therefore the opposing viewpoint um, becomes noisier which makes it even harder for us and so on and so on and so forth. But it also means that that audiences don't hear from us so we become an abstraction and in the lack of actual discourse, then, you know, all of these mistruths and sort of weird ideas and and transphobia sort of rushes in to fill the gap. So I think it's important to start redressing that balance.
0: Yeah, I think that alongside, you know, this uh, knee-jerk response by the media to try and both sides something very often just immediately puts you at risk as well. Uh, We're going to get a a violent uh, transphobe uh, on alongside a trans person on our pedal show, uh, it just doesn't really cut it anymore.
1: Yeah, in it's, that it's, yeah, it's the Don Brash effect. Yeah. You know, uh, we can't discuss Maori, Maori issues at all without having, like, wheeling out some decrepit old white guy to have his views and it's, and it's the same with this. You're talking about something as fundamental as a person's right to self-determination and uh, just living their lives. So we absolutely have to have someone who's made it their sole mission to ensure that does not happen for balance. Like there's no balance there. Just
0: disgusting. Right. And I think, uh, you know, you had a a medium piece out uh, just in the the last week. Maybe, Maybe we can start there just about what, what you're hoping for, I guess, uh, because I, I think it there are, there are a lot of messages there for for lack of a better word that I, that are I really key to to your <clears> experience, but uh, one of the things that is almost blanket missing from mainstream coverage
1: Yeah, so it's it, I guess my my key thoughts and, as I said, one of the things that seems to be really, really missing from this debate, and it's the same with any other marginalized group is that we are reduced down to this single issue you know I am yeah I'm a transgender person I'm also a dad Um, I'm also a cyclist Um, I am in you know interested in trade unionism and and various other things you know I I, you know I'm a relatively good cook I'd like to think you know it's all (laughs) of these other things but it's everything just seems to get boiled down to to this, this one thing and it, it's that dehumanisation that makes yeah. the discussion much harder and I mean I'm not saying anything that every other marginalised group hasn't been shouting as loudly about for a really long time and you know even this week with um, the film They Are Us, once again the voices of people who are the greatest affected are the ones that are missing from from the role, and it's it, it's exhausting and it's it's that feeling of there are so many other things that we could and should be discussing like I shudder to think what I might be able to get done if I wasn't having to defend my right Mm. to exist from people who like as I said just do not seem to have anything better to do with their lives like go outside touch some grass but it's for me as well it's it's this I grew up in the UK um at a time when promoting the the promotion of homosexuality was was banned um, in schools, so you couldn't have LGBTQ plus groups in schools. You couldn't have any literature. If you think about some of the amazing kids' books and things that that have the the protagonist has two pit two mums, for example, like that would be that was banned. I went through my entire school life with absolutely no depictions of people like me. And that law stayed in place till just before I started in teaching college. So when I was a teacher and starting to become a teacher, there was still nothing. And it wasn't, I mean, Mm -hmm. I didn't work in a school that had an LGBT group until 2011. And that's because I set it up, you know, like it's, there's, there's this huge void missing in, in society where it's it's just again it's just showing people going about their lives and that needs to be to be addressed you know if the only time you see queer people is like a five minute item on the news about pride every month or every year like that's not representative of of who we are and to be honest like my gender is nobody else's business really like, for all the oh why, why you know trans people are obsessed with gender, I really not like I guarantee that your your average speak up for woman spokesperson thinks about gender way way more, given that you have literally set up an organization to think about it than your average trans person does who just wants to go about their day, just wants to go to work, you know, and mm-hmm. it's. Yeah, it's infuriating and it's exhausting that we are still having to have these conversations and that people are still rehashing the same arguments that we saw in the 80s around homosexuality, that we just see consistently. You know, we're still having these debates. It's, it's incredible to me that this is how little things have moved forward
2: you draw a really good connection and relationship between the you know like panic gay panic of that era and what's happening now um as much as these supposed radical you know turfs um would would deny that it is exactly the same thing right um and i think like as a member of the queer community it's hot i think it's very difficult to deny that to see the same kind of things be coming up again and reasserting themselves in a sort of different way um but then it's sort of you know it kind of to it it kind of compels you to just stand in solidarity right i mean it should you think it would as if you're a cis queer person
1: (laughs) yeah and you think you think it would and for a long time it it did Mm. and it's fascinating to it, it it's sad to me how many people are being duped by this um you know, the trans people are coming for the butch lesbians, the trans people are coming for this, the trans people are coming for that. And it's the number of times I have seen transphobes within the, 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 the LGB community who then are shocked that other people in the transphobic community are saying things that are homophobic and things. And it's this, they're going to come for you eventually. Like this does not stop And we've seen it in the States like this. There's legislation going through in some States now whereby teachers would have to report children who they feel are gender Mm non-conforming. Like this is where we're going. And
2: for sure. I mean, I mean, you know, when I first realised I was queer, like, the people, you know, who were there to help guide me in the community were trans women, you know? That was my first um, interaction with the community. And as a butch, like, lesbian, um, I see the rebound effect of, you know, transphobia, yeah, on gender non-conforming, supposedly, you know, cis people or whatever the fuck, you know? Um, and uh, it, it really is... And, and, yeah, so it's disgusting seeing, I mean, lesbians, honestly. Um <laughs> the, the some not not all lesbians um, some, oh. aspects of, <laughs> some aspects of, you know the lesbian community just um just completely blind to how you know they're complicit in like yeah the oppression of others, but also in fucking making a less safe environment for themselves in a way, you know what i mean like it's unbelievable
1: yeah right and it's it's the same as you know there's that that long researched effect that people who are um marginalized through say socioeconomic economic reasons or class will vote against their own interests if it means that an even more marginalized group gets less so you see that effect in in you know in some places when it comes to voting rights for eth- like for for ethnic minorities and stuff and it's it feels like it's playing out here this idea that we just need to purge like the weirdo trans people, and then we will ha- then then we will be welcomed completely into society. And it's like, I do you, you know if Vandy you can't see, the, yeah, if you can't see where this rhetoric is going, if you can't see butch women being attacked in bathrooms, if you can't see the the, the same sort of you know, well, all queer people are a bit weird and a bit suspect, you know, if you, if you don't see where that road is heading, you are very very short sighted.
0: I think one of the yeah. things that's often missed as well, uh, just uh, harking back to your comment about, you know, a lot of trans people just want to get on with their lives and this uh, laser focus by uh, kind of anti, anti-trans or, or transphobic groups uh, to paint trans groups as, as the ones who are obsessed, when in fact all they're doing is having to respond to these often quite violent and, and abusive uh, pieces of rhetoric uh, that actively, the, the groups are actively trying to get into the media. Like, What do you expect? Like, What other choice do you have um, except yeah. to respond to that?
1: Yeah. Well, it's, um, I was watching, to, you know, going back to the parallels, um, I was watching uh, some video the other day of when lesbians stormed the Houses of Parliament. They stormed the BBC in the UK over Section 28, and there was this interview with, with one of these women, now saying you know we suddenly be, you know, we suddenly got in the spotlight we were suddenly being singled out and and marginalized we thought we were making these really positive gains and then everything sort of shut down and we had to act in a very visible and aggressive way because nobody was listening to us in any other any other way shape or form like I would love to be on this podcast to talk about let's see, um, you know, any number of things, which I think are way, way more important. But when you have pressure groups, like I said, that really don't seem to have anything else going on. Like I, I, looking at Speak Up for Women's um, Twitter page, for example, like they've not mentioned the nurses strike. They've not mentioned pay inequity. I don't see anything on there about the appalling state of, uh, you know, perinatal care. There's nothing in there about incarceration. There's nothing in there about all of the other things that affect women and femmes in New Zealand. They're obsessed with Mm. trans people. And it's, how do you, when you, as you said, when you have people whose sole purpose seems to be in shutting you out from society, like you have to push back.
2: Absolutely. I mean, actually, I have a story about that, which kind of reflects that. I mean, I, I think it's really interesting to go into like the, the genesis of these groups, because I think, um, you know, a lot of a lot of them are astroturfed you know I don't think that there it really is a manufactured kind of uh fear-mongering right um and by a, a group of bad faith actors and then it also has a sort of cult-like kind of aspects as well which um I think we can all agree if you've ever had to had the misfortune of interacting with a turf um there's definitely some cult-like behaviors but um I had a, a unionist, uh unionist an older elderly unionist comrade who fell into that right in my workplace, and I remember um, I made a. I tried to sort of. My first instinct was, you know, okay, how do I, how do I help this person not go down this road? Because this is, um, I could see, you know, it was hateful. She um, and also I just, you know, I didn't seem healthy for her either. So I made, you know, I made my best attempts in good faith to try and say, hey, this is like complete bullshit. Maybe you should not join a cult. And anyways, it wasn't, I wasn't successful, but um, over the course of the couple of years, you know, every time I would post on Facebook about um, any kind of union issue or woman's issue, she would come back being like, with, with, just going right back to trying to marginalize and, you know, spew hate about trans people. And I remember thinking, Oh, okay. So you're not actually, you know, I mean, I already knew that, but I mean, how is it not so evident and clear to you how much you do not give a fuck about women at all? You know, it, like you can't talk about anything else. Um, and it was just like, um, at that point, you know, Anyways, she's long blocked, but um, it was interesting. I definitely had that impression, you know, it's a so-called feminist. It's just not in any kind of way, shape or form, really.
1: Right. And it's that, it, it, it's, It's. I've, I've seen quite a few people in Britain go down this road. And I, I, as I was saying to Kyle before we started recording, there's, it does seem to me that there's two, there's two layers to this. There's the, the this, as I said, it's the Dawn Brashes. It's that fundamentally unserious argument because you're not arguing with people who are arguing in good faith they are they they, the goalposts constantly shift they will bog you down in in minutiae and for example i remember years ago before before i accepted my my you know that i was trans even i was talking about Trans rights, and, and someone came back and went, Well, what about all of those trans women in prison? And I said, Well, what about prison reform? Like, why are we locking people up in the first place? And they just, you know, these were people who considered themselves to be quite left wing, and they just were not able to, you know, they, like, they just couldn't move past that. Like, the idea of there being a larger issue was just lost on them. So you've got people who can't, um, like I say, people who are arguing bad faith, but you've also got people who I think are extremely anxious for many many reasons and the what the British press is extremely good at doing is creating someone for people to be anxious about so that they're not anxious about things that actually matter like hundreds of thousands of people dying in a pandemic a government that seems to be actively trying to kill everybody that sort of thing and um, a lot of the, the the rhetoric that comes from transphobes is really rooted in a sense of anxiety so I posted a, a me, yeah, posted that Medium article about, um, you know, the realities of being a trans person, how I just, you know, I want to go and live my life. And a lot of the responses from transphobes were just, well, that's all very nice, but I don't care because there will be a big guy in a dress watching my little girl in a changing room. And they've just, there's nothing that exists outside of this sort of totem of anxiety that they created for themselves or has been created for them you can't argue with someone who is not rational in that way because that's not rational that's that's a created you know like fear that they have there's no evidence of self identification for example leading to a massive spike in sexual assaults or harassments in in women only spaces and let's be honest like men have never needed a marker on their birth certificate changed in order to sexually assault and harass women. Like that, the idea that that's the only thing that stands between us and, and and anarchy is bizarre, and that's what makes this so hard. Is it's there's there's no arguing and there's no debate here because on one side you've got people just trying to exist, and on the other you've got this patchwork of weird, bad faith arguments and and people who are not thinking rationally, they're just frightened of something that has been manufactured for them to be frightened about instead of the things which are genuinely alarming. I think that's something as
0: well. So you're talking about this this group of people who are basically being directed, right? And something that you sometimes hear pop up in these kind of uh, conversations about extremist groups, because essentially that's what um, some of these trans groups are, is, okay, we can we can just ignore them or whatever. But in this case, there's a split between the people kind of being recruited and, as you said, Justine, the kind of people organizing the AstroTurf, the people who are who are funding this uh, and the people who are directing it. And, you know, it's all well and good to, to try and ignore some of it and, and just block people or whatever. But in the UK, very clearly and, and just starting to happen here, there's... A mainstreaming of it as well. Uh, and, you know, this year, uh, the National Party in New Zealand has really taken some of that to heart. Ross, do you want to give us a rundown of, of what's happening there?
1: Yeah. Um, so the, to the best of my understanding is um, that the National Party, who are not that popular for various reasons, um, have decided to go down the the race baiting and and transphobic route back to power which as we've seen in other countries you know like populism is is a big thing and playing on that um on people's worst instincts and you can you know national are not being particularly subtle with this let's be honest um we really are getting the the sort of Countdown, own brand version of populism here, and the <laughs> so, so we're starting to see you know Judith Collins' um, thoughts on on colonialism and Paul Goldsmith's thoughts as well, and and given that he is a historian who has been an active member of the Waitangi Tribunal for some of his comments, he's not even being subtle in the fact that he's you know that in, in what he's doing. Because, again, it's a fundamentally unserious point that he's making that's not based on things that he knows to be true from the work that he has done. But part of their attack angle um, has been against uh, transgender people. So they have hired um, one of the founders of Speak Up for Women as uh, as one of their press officers, I believe, which meant that Speak Up for, you know, there was a, a National Party Missive went out about a library's decision to not allow Speak Up for Women to have a meeting. And you think, is that really the, the most important thing that the National Party thought was going on on that particular day in Aotearoa, New Zealand? Um, but more recently, they have accepted a petition that, about stopping transgender women from playing sports, which, on a scale of all of the things to start a petition around, must let alone accept on the steps of Parliament. Like, it's such a vanishingly small issue. Again, it's not subtle what they're doing. It's not particularly clever the way they're going about the way they're going about it either. But that's the table that we're playing on now. So that's this kind of subject. That's the, that. This is the conversation that we need to have.
2: Do you, um, you know, and and it's interesting because I think that like, that's the. That's the alignment and the the alliance that has driven turivism to to the mainstream. Is that alliance between the right and this cult right? Um, and so you kind of see that happening, um, you know, within the national party. Do you do you think what? How do you do you think it could be successful?
1: I have to treat it as though it would be. Yes. Um. I. I, I spent. I spent quite a while looking in horror at what was happening in, in the UK and the US um, with regards to the rollback of trans rights and mm. had sort of talked myself into thinking again that New Zealand, New Zealand's response to this in conversations that I have with people is, you do you, Cara, you know, as long as you, I don't need, necessarily need to agree with what you're doing, at, but but. Go ahead. It's none of, you know, we're, we're very much a sort of hands-off mm. sort of society in my experience, within limits. And um, when, the, you know, I started to see some of the rhetoric happening here, uh, it, I was a bit concerned. But to see it go so gloves off in the last week or so, you can't, there's, there is no hunkering down and hoping that it goes away. I know that some people in some quarters were saying, oh, well, um, you know Annie O'Brien will, As soon as people figure out that she's from Speak Up for Women, like her position will become untenable, and that has not happened because it's very easy, I think, for people to allow that doubt to creep in. You know, a lot of it's couched in, "Oh, there's le- legitimate concerns. This is really about safeguarding women and children," and it's quite people don't want to be called sexist, they don't want to be called anti-feminist, they, so they will allow that doubt to creep in. Mm. But um, with regards to the, 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 the women in sports thing in particular, it astonishes me that the people don't see that for what it is. Like There has never been a trans woman on the podium of the Olympics, I think I, to the best of my knowledge. There has, you know, I don't know of any Olympians who are out and who who were trans when they were competing. If this explosion in trans sports people were happening, surely we would see the board being swept by by trans women. It's almost like these people have taken an old episode of Futurama and taken it as as sort of scientific fact. Um, as a trans person who does play sport, um, I compete in, I compete in mountain biking events, and, and I compete in the male bracket. I am, in terms of my like medical transition, and you know that it it's anybody else's business, but you know, I'm not a hugely far in, and I'm not a particularly fit sort of 38 year old. But I am able to compete mid pack with men, and that's not that's a little bit of an improvement from where I was when I was competing as a woman in terms of time and stuff but a lot of that is down to I am feeling much more comfortable with who I am so I'm enjoying going working out more and enjoying Mm. doing that more but if I it's not as though I am overtaking every single woman on the track because I am now taking testosterone like I still get my ass kicked quite regularly by women out there and and I overtake men and, and women sometimes as well. It's it's almost like human bodies exist on a spectrum and the contents of your pants is not the deciding factor. And I think one of the things that really interests me about, about this conversation is how anti-feminist it is, like this idea that women are so helpless and so weak and so slow that they can they must be a protected species in case anything happens to them is that is that really where feminism has got us to
0: yeah there's Just a lot so of reliance strange. on um, people's imagination about what um, high-level sports is like right as much as anything else where you know they're like oh yeah I could I could take them or, or whatever like uh, yeah <laughs> these this woman football team, uh, man if I was on the pitch like nah mate <laughs> you're, you're going to no. get fucked up
1: yeah it's like that That statistic that the number of, of men who think that they could win a point against Serena Williams <laughs> in a tennis match like just it's it, yeah and it, like I say it's, it's not got any basis in reality And and for example if we're going to look at the Olympics which is fundamentally corrupt anyway but the Olympics has got guidelines in place for trans athletes and has done for a long time one of the few things they do that's quite progressive you know don't take a knee but you can take testosterone um you know uh, like they've already got stuff in place but the 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 recent um petition that was very clearly said that this was not just about elite sports they were going to be targeting community sports and things as well that neckers
2: I play netball with my sister friends, so I didn't know that I was... <laughs> and, you know, I think it's hilarious because, like, there's such a diversity in people's bodies and sizes and stuff. I mean, like, it's just, like, an absurd... It's just... Abs- it's absolutely absurd, right? And it is anti-right. Yeah. It's anti-feminist. Um, In so many yeah. ways.
1: Yeah, well, there's the... The, um, the rugby... The rugby associate or whatever you'd call it, release guidelines that... Because uh, they've... They've decided to target rugby, again, because I think, honestly, I think a lot of these people think the idea of women playing rugby is a bit icky and weird anyway, but they released some guidelines that said that any female, like if you were a trans woman playing rugby and you weighed over 90 kilos or were over 170 centimeters tall, that you would have to be assessed to see if you were dangerous. Now, I don't know if these people have ever watched women's rugby, but there's a lot of cisgender women playing rugby who are over 90 kilos or 170 centimeters tall. The idea that, that that's the metric, like that's such yeah. a such a regressive metric, and so you know it becomes invasive. Like the some of the um, legislation that's been passed in states in America says that that you know, we're talking children sports here. We're talking like actual children legislation being passed that says in order for for these children to play sport they would have to submit to a genital exam so we're talking about like systemically assaulting minors so that they can play sports with their friends like that's where this goes that's what that petition leads to
0: yeah and it really comes back to your point around they just want you to stay inside or, or die they yeah. don't want you to be involved in communities. They don't want you to have any social experience, especially in, in a place like New Zealand where, uh, for better or worse, uh, sport is a, like a key part of our culture. And it makes, I'm, I'm incredibly unsurprised that it's rugby that they're targeting, right?
1: Yeah, it's rugby and, and athletics. And I think there's also, there is a, you know, there, there's the, it's not just transphobia. There's racism in there as well. You know, when I think back to um, Castor Semenya in the Olympics, who was, hounded and subject to the most appalling intrusive pieces because she had the 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 gall to be a black woman who was doing extremely well who happened to look masculine whatever the hell that means and she's a cisgender woman and she was subject to the most appalling i say the most appalling abuse and there was, uh, I remember there was some runner um, who'd competed against her who said, you know, well, you know, because of this, this person competing against me, I missed out on a podium. She came ninth. It's, I think a lot of this is that the only legitimate sport is played by thin white women. Because let's face it, you know, who's, who's out there playing sports who weighs over 90 kilos and 170 centimetres tall? like you know if th- we think about like the the level of diversity in bodies and things like it doesn't stop here
0: no I think um one, one of the other things and and hopefully anyone who has I, I think this has been a good roundup first of all of just the multiple ways in which groups like speak up for one are trying to target the trans community right and, and are forcing responses and one of the other Kind of sideways, I guess. But it's coming out quite a bit, and I do want to, I do want to raise. And I, will say that I think this is this is bullshit. Um, <laughs> just to just start, but I think it's worth um, having a response for, because any, anyone listening to this who who still believes that um, the point I'm about to make has any weight to it, ho- hopefully you'll reconsider it after we kind of line it up. But something I've seen, and even this week you have seen people popping the threads saying this, which is why are we or why is the left focusing on identity politics, specifically in this case trans rights, uh, when everything is a class issue?
1: Yeah, that's but it's all part of the same the same thing, isn't it? Like it's it's when I and again it's this. I come back to this. It's it's this seeing trans people as a discrete as a discrete identity, you know, like trans people are, I I think honestly it's it's some of the ways that we're painted in the media, we're either predators or we're blue haired Ponsonby youths who need to get better hobbies. And it's not true, you know, like it's, and it's always pitted as being, you know, that, that, like say this is the the transgender people are exclusively white and exclusively middle-class or whatever. And it's, it's not true. Like you'll, you find gender diversity across every every class every you know every cultural group every every social group you know we are not just just one thing uh, but we are overrepresented in in so many negative statistics because of of that stigma you know I, I know a lot of people who have come out as trans and have been managed out of their jobs in various different ways. A lot of people who are not in mainstream education are trans, queer gender non-conforming because schools are not a safe place for them so therefore they are they, you know their, their education is suffering, which means that their employment prospects are suffering and it's hard enough to be employed in a young person now anyway. Like it's but it's that we, you start to roll because this is a rollback of rights. You start to roll back the rights for one group. We, know, we always know it doesn't stop there. Like these, The people who want this to happen are not going to roll back the rights for one group and then go, right, well, our work here is done, isn't it? We're all good now. You know, it's. You have to be pushing forward for equity for absolutely everybody.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things which... I mean, Optimus has raised, uh, maybe not to my credit, I just tell people to fuck off, um, which probably doesn't help move the needle at all, <laughs> But what's really interesting about this is when that is raised as an issue, the, the group they're talking about is often one of the most economically vulnerable, um, the most vulnerable in our, our uh, and we'll get into this um, in, in a bit, in our health systems in our education systems um, in terms of mental health. And you have to take a step back. I, I think if you're, if you're in a position where... You're, you're trying to push a class narrative onto every conversation that is happening um, in the political space. You have to take a step back and, and ask if there's something else at play here and why they're targeting the most vulnerable in the first place and whether you should be showing solidarity as a default rather than trying to pull it back to class in some way.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it's you come back to this, it's classic, divide and rule it's it's get get the left whatever that means um fighting about identity (laughs) politics we're going to create a couple of straw men for you to go after you know like i would love to be spending my time and effort on things which are, are frankly more important yeah you know like and Improving workers' rights, improving healthcare access, improving education, improving mental health provision mm-hmm. are more important. But I'm being stopped from doing that because I have like these, these single-issued groups who are targeting me and people like me. And you can't ignore that because they're not going to ignore it because that's all they've got going on.
2: I mean, I would say we don't even have to say this is more important than that, right? I think we can just say that, like, they're they're as important as they are. And they all are, you know, important to the people who are impacted and affected. But, um, like, my idea, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I have a different idea of class politics to the, the people that you're describing, um, Kyle. Well, hopefully a lot of um, us have a
0: different idea. Yeah,
2: no. But you know what I mean, though? Because, like because i really think that class politics is a rainbow coalition that's you know um and, and it has to be by necessity because um you know the working class are a hugely diverse group of people and so if you can't understand you know your your uh, solidarity and your interest in being in solidarity with fellow you know working class people who are marginalized because of their gender or their sexuality or their race or whatever else um you know i think you're missing the point of class politics which is functionally about co- coming together in solidarity right um so i think class politics is just by virtue of like the idea that it's an overwhelming majority of people a really rainbow coalition and um and and i don't mean that just in terms of gay terms though i would like that too <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding um like, you know what i mean like no, so, <laughs> so no i'm not um but you know what i mean like like so when people try to reduce like class politics to just sort of industrial issues i'm just kind of like but that's not the whole reality of working class people's lives, right? Because you're a worker but then you go home and you're um, a trans man or you're a worker and then you go home or you're a worker or you're a, you're a you know, you, you are a, you, whatever you bring, you bring all your, your whole self to work and then you are your whole self outside of work as well. And there's just such a diversity and multiplicity of working people's experiences that you can't just say, oh, no, we're just going to, you know, focus on sort of industrial issues. You, I think you really alienate a lot of people that way. People um, need to be able to be able to be their, their whole selves um, within a class, working class movement. So I really just disagree with this idea of class politics as this is real narrow, um, yeah. like economic kind of thing.
1: I think you make a good point there as well and I think that 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 narrow definition is is also very capitalistic and it reduces people down to their productivity it.
2: yeah
1: you know if you're only seeing people within the 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 work that they do or who they are producing um labor for that does not take into account every you know every part of that person yeah um and it's, you know, like also your identity impacts on your ability to work. Like, as you said, I'm, 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 I'm trans when I wake up in the morning. I'm trans when I go to work. I'm trans when I take part in sports. <laughs> you know, I'm trans in, in all of these things. I would like for that not to impact on my ability to do those things. And part of the struggle is to get to a point where it does not impact. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, again, that's, that's part of the class struggle is removing the barriers to to equity and you know absolutely everywhere if you're not working towards that what are you doing
2: who knows what they're doing it's just so confusing They're going around
0: (laughs) people's twitter threads and just like reply guying to everything
2: i mean just an example like i think this is i have a good maybe a personal example of how this kind of thing can you know implicate you in your workplace and it is a you know workplace issue but you know um i had a job where i received numerous complaints um i had to dress sort of professionally um and obviously like I kind of dress a bit masculine my vibe is masculine a little Mm -hmm. bit masculine and I received like a couple of complaints about from people who said um I was unprofessional and I didn't dress professionally and it wasn't appropriate like how I dressed and that um I you know and I suck out right and I remember receiving this complaint. I was really scared that my boss like wouldn't see through what I saw, which is that it's basically like lady, lady, wear pants, ladies wearing pants and short hair, short hair lady. You know what I mean? Like that's, that was, that was all it was, it was just like, you know, cause like I'm not wearing a pencil skirt and like high heels basically. And um, thankfully my boss was really supportive, but like, you know, not everyone would have been. And I was felt really vulnerable. Um, and it's just one of the ways i think you know you really are like yeah anyways i think that's class politics personally
1: yeah and i think it's it's yeah and it's a good point as well about once you start policing how people can identify and once you start policing how people can express themselves like that does not again that does not stop with people who don't identify as transgender and it's that incredibly regressive narrow view of what women can and cannot do, what women can and cannot say, what men are meant to be. Um, I I, I thought we had moved past this. And it astonishes me that arguments which seem extremely old fashioned and very conservative are now being used by people who call themselves progressive feminists. Like say this idea that women are so fundamentally weak that they cannot compete in a level playing field at all with anyone male I didn't I, I remember growing up to being told that women could do anything that they wanted to do I didn't realize that that was women could do anything they wanted to do as long as there's no men around at all because they'll just you know they'll they'll just be stomped on and I, I, I it worries me what message that is sending out you know like I, I sort of yeah it, it it, it just feels very conservative, which it is.
0: Yeah, I, I think um, maybe it's another one of the reasons we are talking earlier about reasons why it's, those icons aren't as virulent here in, in New Zealand just yet as opposed to the UK. And so some of that cultural stuff around women being able to do you know whatever the fuck they want um, is a lot stronger here. So we, we have um, women who compete in men's competitions already, right? Um, mm. I think one of the top sharers... As, as a woman at the moment, for example, you know, yeah, yeah we just have some a, a lot of really hard case women here who have who have forged a path there, and so people are, are told, oh, these women can't compete with men, and everyone's just kind of like, guess they fucking can, yeah, and it just and I, makes it harder to land that point.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it does, and it, I mean, there's also there's a whole other discussion we could have there around the. Um, idolization of a particular brand of masculinity in this country and the effect the impact that that has on mental health outcomes and well-being across the board but that let's say that's a discussion that we could have a whole other time but i think one of the things that that we can do i agree that, that yeah new zealand has got a very like whatever you do is kind of up to you we are in some ways a huge caveat there you know in some ways we are more equitable but it's it's about one of the things that I often hear is I don't care if you're white, black, brown, gay, straight, purple, a unicorn, whatever, uh, you know, and it's like, well, that's, uh, you know, some of these things are not like the others. And it's moving away from the I don't care what you are to I affirm who you are, whoever that may be. And it's little steps that make things more welcoming. You know, so if you're a young queer or trans person and you go online and all you see is people saying that you are hated in society and the vast majority of people don't actually care that much about your gender they're going to take that silence as agreement with this very vocal very negative group I think it was like um, there was a recent poll in the UK for example that said that actually like 50 odd percent of women polled were in favor of self-identification and transgender rights thirty odd percent didn't really have an opinion on it either way seventeen percent were against it so that's less than one in five and I imagine the figures would be similar here certainly the vast majority of people I see and i and I work in a relatively conservative workplace I'm outwardly trans there I haven't had any kind of negative feedback in my workplace at all in fact it's been quite an, but it, among management, it has been very affirming. The vast majority of people, again, they do not care what bathroom I am using. They do not care what my, you know, they use my correct pronouns because that's what, that, that's what they are. But you, from what you hear from the UK, it's, the, it's, it's extremely transphobic and very, very negative because they've got such a loud mouthpiece. What you can do if you're someone who doesn't care or is broadly in agreement with the right of, of trans people to exist but don't want to shove down our throats. That whole, you know, why is this such an issue? The easiest way to make it not an issue is just to make small steps towards affirming things. Like, do you have to ask someone's gender on a form when they sign up for something? Is that information really relevant? If you do have to ask it, is there an opportunity for people to put in what they identify as rather than just male or female? Um, If you are running a sporting event, for example, do you have a non-binary category? The first... um, one of the really big endurance bike events in the US that was held last week actually was the first ever to have a non-binary category, which is, which is awesome. One person entered, they are now the, 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 the unbound <laughs> gravel non-binary champion, but they made the point, they said, it's not about me as an individual, it's about the fact that this exists yeah. and that more people who might not have felt welcomed before will now take part. You know, mountain biking is quite a masculine sport, quite a macho sport and it can can feel quite unwelcoming. It doesn't take much to just say, you know, this is a, a queer and, you know, and trans affirming space. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not, not a big thing if you run a business to ask that people put the pronouns in their email. The pronouns are just like a tiny part of it, but what it does say is, I have actively thought about this, and I am open to this being part of the corey road that we have.
0: Yeah. And I think it just helps strengthen the communities as well, right? Um, and just coming back to the class stuff again, like, why, why, why are people asking why we're focusing on these issues that are heavily targeted at vulnerable people and not coming mm. together in solidarity and just stamping those fuckers out, right? So, so we can move on as a group. Um, mm. You can say, okay, so they're targeting this this group. We know it's coming from uh, some form of capital and power. Let's, let's rally behind them and and make sure that they know we have their
1: back. Right, and it's, again, you know, you think about how underrepresented transgender people are in terms of, I mean, part of the reason why trans people aren't being interviewed in all these stories is because you do not have a trans person who's on any sporting board or um, advisory group in, in New Zealand so who are they going to go to for the quote some spod like me probably not um (laughs) you know there's that lack of representation but it just you know you think about how it's pride month in northern hemisphere so you've got all of these businesses who are chasing the pink dollar um who have not done a damn thing for for trans or queer or queer rights if trans people transitioned and got like their earning power became exponentially higher (laughs) you know like the conversation would be much different but as far as as people are concerned like we're not important because we we're viewed as you know we're this invisible group yeah it's it's very frustrating like I, i i want to be able to focus on all these other things but i don't feel like i'm i'm able to while there are groups that are targeted very firmly on stopping me feeling safe getting at the house I think
0: from there we can kind of segue into the, the next section of what we wanted to talk about today, which kind of moves from the overrepresentation of uh, trans communities and in a lot of um, kind of poor health outcomes in, in our health uh, service, which is also just like kind of fucked across the board, um, and and also in kind of um, you know a, a range of other kind of social. Uh, areas yeah i i don't i don't know where to start with that in particular um but maybe justine if you wanted to start by talking about where the health system is right now and what's happening in in your part of the world
2: yeah sure um i mean i guess i should just before i begin sort of um have a little bit of a preamble that um you know i'm on on one of 200 as justine just myself um but when i when i talk now i'm probably i work for the new zealand nurses organization and when i i'm going to talk a little bit about the health sector and i i'm going to put my sort of hat on my work hat on to talk about that um you know and then if i do have any kind of like justine opinions i'll let you know what those are but certainly um any uh any controversial things i say they're very much my opinion and not (laughs) the nurses organization especially the stupid ones. So keep going. <laughs> um no, so yeah, um well, uh the health yeah, I think the the health system is in a state of crisis. And it's been in a state of crisis for a really long time. Um, you know, sort of uh, decline um ever since the 1990s, um it's been systematically underfunded by successive governments. And so I think that's really important because firstly, I I'm not laying the blame solely on the current government. Um, What I blame the current government for is their failure to fix the problem, which they absolutely can do. But this is a problem that has been um, not addressed by successive governments. Um, And and it's a really interesting one because when you talk to people about what they care about when they vote, um, health and education, man, that's what it comes down to, right? People really... This is something that people care deeply about, but it's sort of, um, I think, in a lot, in many ways, hidden from public view. What's actually going on, and um, as I'll get to, I think healthcare workers have been have been really stretched to make sure that the public hasn't felt the impact of this systematic under-resourcing. So healthcare workers being as they are really caring and dedicated kind of professionals have been stretching themselves for a really long time to make sure that the impact of this um, isn't felt by the public, but it is being felt by the public now. And um, I think healthcare workers have really just hit a wall and that's kind of why we're seeing a lot of action, right? In um, industrial action in in the in the industry. But, um, you know, uh, the, the Council of Trade Unions, um, Bill Rosenberg, wrote a paper uh, last, just in 2017, kind of outlining, um, you know, the, how much funding was missing in healthcare, and it was around $2 billion, which is a lot. Um, and I would say that that number's only grown, and I actually think that's quite a conservative estimate. So that's $2 billion just to carry on as is. That's not to um, improve anything. That's just that's what we need to stay steady yeah so that two billion dollar fiscal sort of that two billion dollar hole that the the current government has not done anything to address that and I think um there was like recently like it's still there and probably has gotten larger and uh it's um yeah I mean I don't know it's it's really urgent I mean that's the only like it's it's really urgent because what you know under resourcing of health is lives it's you know the, the, co- the real cost is in negative uh, outcomes for patients yeah
0: so one of the things you just mentioned there was just has how much um health workers kind of try and ensure the public isn't affected by by what they're doing. And and in some cases that refers to whether they take industrial action or not as well. Do you wanna talk a bit about the history of when they last took major industrial yeah. action? Um or, so- or when they have recently?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, like a lot of, I, I, I've been really interested in seeing um, some of the media sort of analysis of the nurses' strike because actually none of it has really taken into account. They're treating it as if it's just the same sort of public service workers are going on strike. And there is, you know, a lot of, there's a public service workers are the most unionised workers. Um, teachers and nurses and public sector workers, we're, you know, that's where the union density is. So there tends to be more industrial action within the public service. But they're treating it just like it's another sort of public sector workers on strike kind of story. And it's, it's not like the significance of nurses going on strike is, um, you know, kind of uh, evident when you look at when nurses have gone on strike. Yeah. And so um, they went on strike in the 1980s for safe staffing and better funding. They went on and then they didn't go on strike for 40 years over 40 years and well actually no i can't do math so this is my problem but anyways and then they then they went on strike in 2018 they almost went on strike in 2004 they didn't though but they they went on strike for the first time since the 1980s in 2018 and now they've gone on strike again in 2021 and i'll like the significance of that i hope that that does that speak for itself (laughs) like (laughs) i i hope it, it should really speak for itself because nurses don't go on strike i mean that, that's a rule of thumb and in fact if you had asked people within the new zealand nurses organization before 2018 where the nurses would go on strike it would have been like very skeptical nurses don't really go on strike that was like the truism that was often repeated they don't really go on strike even though you know we can see that the health system is becoming degraded that their working conditions are really degraded that was like the kind of rule of thumb that nurses wouldn't really take strike action because they care too much because of the impact it has um, and uh, yeah, we're just seeing a complete reversal of that. So the significance is like really, really big for nurses to be out on the street, you something's deeply
1: wrong. and I think you make a really good point there, and I see it in education too, around there's this narrative that if you are a public sector worker, particularly in a caring profession, and particularly if you're in a profession that's seen as feminine, that it, you know you should be doing it for free because you care so much about it. So you know you see it with teachers strikes. Um, you know, similar overloaded professions and just this this sort of very sort of patrician style horror at this idea that you would be doing it to feed your family, put a mm-hmm. roof over your head, that this is actually a job that you do because we work in a capitalist, you know, in a capitalist society where everybody needs to work. And yeah, this sort of, it's almost as though it's obscene to yeah. be doing it for money. It's a, it's disgusting that you would want to be doing one of these wonderful professions but at the same time, you are valued so little. So whenever they're not striking, it's, it's you know, teachers are not teaching kids enough stuff or teachers are teaching too much of this stuff. You know, why aren't we doing, you know, why aren't nurses doing more? Why, you know, there'll, there'll be some anecdotal evidence of a nurse who was a bit short, probably because they'd done a double shift and not had a day off in two weeks or whatever. And that will be a sign that, that nurses don't care enough. And it's... It's you're, you're treated like dog shit in these professions over and over and over again. And then when you push back on that at all, you're again, it's this horror that you wouldn't want to be treated like dog shit all the time for this profession that you do just for the love of it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I won't name names, but I was sitting across the table from an employer that employed nurses. And um, the person said, but nurses don't, um, you know, we're talking about wages and, you know, me saying obviously the wages need to be higher. And they were like, but nurses aren't in it for the money. Yeah, And I was just like speechless, you know, and, um, you know, I was like, Jesus.
0: I think one of the most disgusting things for me is that regardless of which government happens to be in, um, at any given time, you know, it, it could even be a labor government. Um, <laughs> they, Good they would <laughs> drive the conversation in that direction as well. And one of the things you've seen regarding that is the overwhelming focus by the ministry during this time, focusing on that the 17% uh, raise that the nurses have asked for. And the attempt to paint the equity changes, the equitable uh, equitable, um, pay uh, changes from what last year as being somehow uh, like enough. When in fact, there are are multiple things on the table um, and the pay isn't, while important, is maybe not even the most important one. Do you wanna take us through those, Justine?
2: yeah um what I would say to that just putting my justine hat on is that pay <laughs> equity process um obviously you know is a landmark it's important legislation but nurses uh I would say that these our our um our members have lost faith because they're not seeing follow-through, you know, and they're not seeing promises. There were promises of safe staffing made last negotiation round. And, I mean, Andrew Little himself said nurses are right to feel angry about, um, you know, the results of those initiatives because of how much they didn't, you know, like they haven't followed through. So when that trust is broken down, you cannot say, oh, we're going to go through some process and we'll solve the issue. Nurses are saying, I'm going to take the power back into my own hands. This is, I've got, you know, these are our negotiations. Um, so it's, it's hard to tell someone to believe in a legalistic process when or, or something that is not in their hands when they've not ever been delivered for, you know, when it just is not coming through for them. So that's one thing I would say around the equity, you know. And, you know, it, and actually, I'm sorry, but 17%. I mean, you know, Jacinda, I, I really, Jesus, that really was... Infuriating. Um, so you know, Jacinda and Grant, their response to the nurses has been incredibly aggravating and actually just insulting in so many ways. Um, yeah, because you know what, we we were asking for 17%. We were asking for 17% for our healthcare assistants who we are the lowest paid workers, healthcare workers in the hospital. You have to, it is a highly skilled role and they make less in the hospitals than the, the, the cleaners, not to say that the cleaners don't do a really hard job. They make um, less in the hospital and the cleaners and cooks and everything. They're, they're on minimum wage. They start at minimum wage. And this is, a, this is a qualified health professional, okay? They start on minimum wage in the hospitals. You can go into private healthcare and earn 17% more as in the same role. So because of that, these healthcare workers are not coming to work in our DHBs because why would they? you can earn 17% more in an aged care facility. Why would you come and work in a DHB for the minimum wage doing one of the hardest, like genuinely one of the hardest jobs imaginable? And then to see Jacinda um, sort of using that to say, oh, well, they asked for 17%. Um, Yeah, we did. Because uh, that is parity with what they're earning in the private sector. And your health system needs healthcare assistance to function. So yeah, we were asking for 17%. Damn right, <laughs> like that's, that's all I can say to that. Like, yeah. it's, it's, just, it's just like, you know, and it's just trying and then it's like saying, oh, we want to bring the bottom up. Well, no, you clearly don't though because you're using that as a cudgel against um, us in negotiations and sort of spinning it in a way to make it seem that, you know, greedy, well-paid nurses are trying to get 17%. I mean, firstly, I would support anyone. I, I do, like, genuinely, like, everyone should get, like, we should be earning way, way more. All of us, I don't care. The relativities, the relativities, let's all go up. Um, But, yeah, no, See, damn right we are asking for 17%. Um, uh, sorry, Carl, que- uh, your question was around safe staffing. Was that right? <laughs> hey,
1: I
0: was, I was also in
1: there.
2: I went on a run. I went on a run. But I think, um,
1: yeah, I just, I, I it's so disingenuous. And it's that. It's that meme about right-wing governments will just say no, but but Labour governments across the board will say no, but they'll have like a hashtag Save the Nurses, hashtag BLM. I mean, again, you saw it in uh, again, Brit- Britain, normal island, where um, you had NHS nurses being applaud. Like they they'd go out on their like go out into the gardens and applaud the nurses. And these are nurses who are being, were being denied PPE, who were dying at such a high rate from COVID, who were not getting a break, and then, you know, not actually getting anything that they needed in order to do their jobs and save lives, but they were going out and applauding for them. And then there was the backlash that the nurses weren't appreciating the applause enough. And it's, that's such a, again, that's such a labor part of it. Tory government in the UK but such a Labour Party attitude it's like we're not going to give you anything material to make things better but we're going to look at you kind of sadly while we say that yeah I think yeah
2: um I mean Grant Robertson also sort of spoke tried to spin it like the nurses got a huge and they got a huge um increase last time no they didn't no they didn't and um, as I just told you we've got healthcare workers on the minimum wage in the hospitals who can earn 70% more in aged care, so I think that,
0: um, that labour attitude has has really come through as well, um, and the way that you know they're taking they're taking this massive like electoral tsunami off the back of the COVID response, uh, you know, which has been driven by our health sector um, and especially you know by the people on the ground doing the face to face work. Um, it, you know, healthcare workers among them, um, doing some of the the riskiest, most dangerous work, and yeah, then there's a safe staffing um, mm. kind of well, thing that they're asking for, and and labour are turning around and taking that off the table as well.
2: So let's, I mean, let's talk about safe staffing because I think it's really important because I think it's like a bit of a, it sounds a bit like a jargony thing. I, I think when people think, when I say safe staffing, when we talk about safe staffing. Um, maybe people don't really realize what that means, but I mean, it is the, it can be the difference between life and death, right? Like if you don't have enough, um, healthcare workers to do the job and, um, yeah, but, um, so with, you know, with safe staffing, um, there is a legal requirement for healthcare, for nurses, our members, NZO members, to provide life-preserving services in the event of, um, you know, taking industrial action. So going, even going on strike, they still have to maintain the baseline of staffing. And we had multiple incidences throughout the country in in numerous DHBs where the baseline staffing for life-preserving services was actually higher than it would be on a normal shift. And so that's, you know, that's how degraded the staffing is within the hospital system. I mean, that's, we're talking about life-preserving services. We're not talking about, that's not all there is to healthcare. You know, it it needs to be life-affirming, not just life-preserving um that's we're talking about an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff and we're not and in some places we're not really even getting there um and you know um I, I think I mean we take that responsibility incident I mean the our members take that responsibility to provide life-preserving services really seriously and they don't want anyone to come to home um and so you know um you know they dutifully do provide life-preserving services but you can imagine what a kick kick it is for it to be higher than they are sometimes rostered on in these places. You know, I mean, that is, it's unimaginable really to, and, and I mean, I, I think it's really revealing. Um, and and I'm, not, I'm not saying that to make anyone um, sort of frightened of the healthcare system, but I do think it speaks to the urgency of the situation. And the thing is, you're not going to solve it even by saying, okay, we've got money for more nurses, because the fact is, it's just not, um, it's just not a place people would want to be, with the conditions that they work in and the, the pay is just so uncompetitive. I mean, you could just go to one, a, a, like an easier job and earn more money. You know, I mean, we've got nurses leaving to go be HR consultants and why wouldn't you? Because you earn more and you just sit and do like what you just sit in an office and send a couple of emails. You know what I mean? Like you're just, it's not really, it's just, it's, it, the, you know, it's a hard job and it's just not, it's just not made to be attractive with the pay rates. You can go do any number of easier jobs and earn a lot more money. That's just the reality of it. Um, yeah. And, and safe staffing, the fact that safe staffing is even a part of bargaining says a lot, you know, and that, I think that's probably the main thing for, for our nurses. That's, you know, that's why they're out there. Um, it's not just about money, but I mean, the whole thing plays into each other, as I said, because you've got to make it attractive to do a really tough job. Um, but um, they're there because they don't feel safe. Um, they don't feel safe at work and they think that, and they feel that if they're not safe, then their patients aren't safe and they don't, And they, they're there, so they are really out there because they care. Um, and I think, you know, New Zealand, I, I think that we have a complacency around this that we need to shake, you know, because um, I don't know, as I said, our healthcare system, I mean, that's about, uh, I, I think that that's, fu- that's just fundamental, right? I mean, I, I think it's about protecting a toddler. You know, I, I say this a lot, but like <laughs> this healthcare system is something we built out of, you know, the sort of ashes of poverty and war. Um, it's one of the greatest legacies of the 1930s Labor, the first Labor government. And um, it's being, you know, I think it's, it's being hollowed out um, and it has been hollowed out. And um, it's something we should definitely fight for. Um, all our public services really i think health is particularly like urgent just because it can as i said you know it's people's lives like literally like life or death and uh i you know i'm really concerned that the government is not going to uh, yeah i think the government actually feels like a sense of they feel kind of like miffed at the nurses for doing this yeah yeah, they i think they feel actually miffed because they feel that the nurses are ruining their like they're you know they think oh we're doing the pay agreements and we're lifting up the bottom why didn't you strike national? yeah why didn't you strike <laughs> international um and also i think so that's 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 the attitude and i think that that's um a really poor attitude and i think that the, the government you know just needs to take stock because as i said nurses don't yeah. go on strike for fun it's,
1: it's that expectation that labor governments have a fealty without like any kind of reciprocation so yes. how dare you strike after all we've done for you, which is nothing, um, why wouldn't you, and it's it's that really, as you said, that really poisonous rhetoric, and it, again, coming from an education background, you see the same with teachers as well, that is that, you know, you're putting people's lives in danger by striking for one day, and you think, no, actually the system is putting people in danger by having nurses who are exhausted and underpaid and undervalued who are working in dangerous conditions day in day out that's where the danger is the danger is not in this one day the danger is far more chronic and insidious than that but that that's that's too difficult a conversation for these people to have yeah and it's it's so the sense of shame or the this implication of guilt that you're striking because you're greedy you're striking because you're you're just trying to get what you can get. It's ungrateful. Again, if you love this job, you would do it for free. And it's for the vast majority of people, a strike is a minor inconvenience. Again, you see it with teachers. Teachers go and strike and it's, oh, I have to. The people who are arguing about it, you know, that are the ones who are going to be impacted the least. Oh, you have to work from home in your media job for a day. What is how sad? Um, or you have to pay the au pair extra so that they can look after your kids what a shame down here in south auckland during school strikes for example you had schools being kept open by teachers because they knew that members of the community would not be able to Mm. to look after Fano. the support was there 100 percent. but it was we also have to it's not just a minor inconvenience and it's, it's this, you know, when you think about also who makes up the, the, you know, the the nursing where work, like workforce, you know, I, I live not far from Middlemore, you know, I see who is walking to work every day, who is on those shifts. And it's black and Brown women. It's, it's, you know, it's these communities and it's, you know, we were talking earlier about where's that class solidarity. Well, where is it, you know?
0: Absolutely, Not in the Labour government, that's for sure. But I mean, the, the question I have is, why, why would the nurses take a day off to strike instead of taking a day to clean the black mould out of their hospitals?
2: <laughs> so many good questions. So many good questions. Um, you know, it's funny that you mention um, the people who are least inconvenienced by these things being the most like vocal about not supporting them. We, um, you know, we saw patients join the picket line. Because they feel it too, they honestly were like, "Yeah, I can see how stressed and um and and harried and just overloaded these ne- these nurses are." And they're amazing, and it was like, Jesus, like I I I. It's just, yeah, like you know, I don't know. I feel like when you've got nurses and patients like being like, "Please fix something. Something's really wrong." And, and I and I think the same with, you know, teachers. I I think this is all one struggle. You know, I really do. It's so it's so the same. It's degraded public services coming out in all these different ways. And if the Labor government thinks that they can just ride it out, I've got another. Th- they've really got another thing coming for them. Because honestly, I I think you're going to see a, a a wave of public sector. Action. I wouldn't be surprised if the teachers went off next time as well. Um, And and so should they get on, you know, you guys, but, you know, teachers, nurses, last time we went, we all went off. Um, Doctors uh, went on strike, you know, like, I don't know. It's just, it's a continuing wave. And the the underlying issues driving people to take action is not being really resolved by the government. Um, Yeah. I mean, and it's pointed out all the time, but if you're a nurse, you can go uh, to Australia where they have, you know Australia, like now that's another place that we all <laughs> let, let let me say no more. Um not, not a huge island, fan. Yeah. yeah, another another normal um, island, but um, you, at least uh, in some ways they do have a lot better working conditions. And so you can go overseas, you can go to Australia, over the ditch, and earn twenty thousand dollars more on average yeah. as a nurse, or and probably as a teacher as well. I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah Why yeah, would you yeah, say? Yeah, how-
1: yeah. And I, I think you, you've touched on a really important point and just to go back to that, what you said about it's a system that's been running on goodwill and it's not, it's, I, I sort of see that more as a system that is in with, it's, it's withdrawal, like you're withdrawing from the future in order to, you know, it's all on credit mm-hmm. and it's, you know, it's, it's the same in so many other public sectors when you're relying entirely on, again, shaming people into doing far more than they need to and pushing people way past what is acceptable you you end up suddenly when when the people who are running things on fumes finally give out and everyone goes oh the system is you know everything is so broken it's like well yeah because you've forced people to push themselves as far as they have so they're doing so every person is doing two people's worth of jobs like every you know and it's again it comes back to those intersections where you have people who don't feel that they are able to push back because historically they've not been listened to mm-hmm. which means that they are more likely to flog Except themselves it, yeah yeah
2: absolutely I, I think that's completely correct um and 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 so you you cannot do nothing but just celebrate the fact that you know we have now this action you know that teachers went on strike and nurses have gone on strike and um and people have are finding their, you know, their an ability to to resist. Um, that is a beautiful thing, you know? Well <laughs> like mm. I um I uh, I was at Auckland Hospital, uh led the 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 healthcare workers out. As at 11 a.m. when they took action on the 9th of June. And honestly, it was incredibly, like, emotional um, to to see these bleary-eyed, clearly overworked, amazing, um, you know, amazing nurses, healthcare workers, healthcare workers are so amazing. I just, I, I really, they are inspiring and, and teachers also inspire me, but I don't spend as much time with them, unfortunately, because <laughs> of my job. So, um, but when they walked off, you know, I could, you could really sense this, this uh, this feeling of like i'm taking my dignity back you know um Hmm. and i'm i'm finding my power and it was awesome and it was emotional and and i and i you know i think these are the fights that we these are fights for the future of our um i think they're really for the public good you know just the idea of the public good that not everything can be subservient to like markets and budgets and finance capitalist realism you know shit See,
1: that yeah. was just that was Justine speaking, not um, a <laughs> um couldn't have
2: guessed. You, <laughs> yeah.
1: I think Sorry. I think you make a really good point there around you 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 know leading out the nurses and, and seeing who nurses are. And it's again coming from an education background as well, it's like we have got a very our education force is is aging. And I look at you know, when I when I have dealings with the, the health system. Um, you know, going into hospitals and things like nurses are not by and large young radicals you know we're the, it's it's also an an aging workforce you know these are not people who are you know like say like fresh out of university, like stoked with the fires of of Marxism. you know, they are exhausted aunties and uncles who you know, probably voted for that nice Mr. Key back in the day because, you know, he just, you know, you just look like the kind of guy you would have a beer with. You know, certainly staff rooms that I've been in have really not been hotbeds of, of uh, you know, communist thought. So when you see nurses and healthcare workers striking, that's, you know, that's desperation. That's real, like running mm. out of options here and then to have them turn around and painted as these like firebrands who were just itching for an opportunity to stick it to capital or whatever is so disingenuous.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Completely right. I mean, you know, talking about the sort of um, how sometimes the generational warfare discourse doesn't really um, reflect the reality of, of, of things, but yeah, nursing and teaching, these are aging workforces. These are not young, radicals, um, this, you know, a lot of them baby boomers um, who are finding, you know, a, a politics for the first time in their lives, driven by the, the you know, just the state of things. Um, you know, I, I do think that the housing crisis is fueling a lot of this as well. Um, it's just the crunch of, um, you know, living um, in these, you know, urban centres where we need teachers and we need um, healthcare workers and we can't keep them because people can't afford to live here. Um, so I think that's definitely, you know, I think people are being squeezed from both sides. Um, and, you know, I think this, the government's just not, not meeting, um, this is a huge challenge and the government's not up to meeting it, um, so far. Um, and I don't think it's going to, I mean, I'll issue a warning to Grant Robertson, again, putting my Justin hat on, um, you know, when they announced the pay freeze, um, You know, it was a, it was, I think that was sort of, I think very well aimed at the nurses, basically like lower your expectations. And I said at the time, you know, fuck around and find out. Um, And I, I still maintain, you know, I don't think, I I think that um, the nurses are, I mean, I would say from our, from my discussions with, members is that they're in this fight the struggle you know they they recognize that they that this can't they they are at their end point they just can't they're not going to go on the way things are they've had enough and so you know they're they're in it you know they're in it for the long haul so um good luck to the to Jacinda and Grant you know that's all I can say bad luck to them yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) and I
1: think you make a really good point there as well you know this aging (laughs) this aging workforce who I think are we, we do talk about boomers as being all like a landlord class, but they're not landlords of the landlord class. And you've got a lot of older people now who are getting close to retirement age, working in the public sector who might still be renting and might start to see that things are not going well or are, you know, the, the, the retirement that they maybe had had planned is not going to happen. They're working harder. They're having to do more with less and, starting to see that that politics really does affect them in ways that might not have done previously. And that's, again, you know, vast majority of those are not going to be white Remuera, you know, four by four owners. They're going to be, uh, so you know, down here in South Auckland, you know, it's a lot of like a predominantly brown workforce. Again, you think about COVID-19, the vast majority of people on the front line of preventing COVID-19 from getting in are from South Auckland. They are they are pacifica they're going home to overcrowded houses the, you know the, the the cost of houses in this neighborhood has almost doubled in the last five years like it's, a, it's appalling how much it costs to to live here now and something has got to give and when it does they're not going to care who, like whether there's a nice hashtag on on the no that they get from the government they're not going to care who's in charge. They're, but it's going to have, like something has to give. And I don't think a lot of people who are making the decisions understand just how stretched everything is. And as you said, it's because it's all been done on, on goodwill for so long.
2: Yeah, I don't think they do either, and I think like you really see it come through in Grant and Jacinda's r- rhetoric. You know, they are career politicians. Their only work experience has been like working at other politicians' offices before they themselves became politicians. Um, the only one that's made a little bit more sense was Andrew Little, but he's obviously hamstrung by by um, Parliament. Um, cabinet sorry and you know he's the one with a bit of a union background and um now i'm not giving him any kudos because you know he's not delivered but um you really see that you kind of see that contrast definitely in their re- rhetoric come through and i will say like i think i think it's an own goal but you know the, it's a cell phone with the government because these are their voters i mean these are the people that vote for labor They're they are these. really
0: really do seem to be relying on the who else are they going to vote for
2: yeah, um, but you know, that's the thing. I don't really think they understand is that they will, if if National took advantage of it, um, I don't know. You know, although um, well, they just won't vote. Well, they will Yeah,
1: exactly. That, that's that's what I find so interesting about National Party's decision to just go, f- like, just smash that racism button is it yeah, would not be right? hard. Yeah, like it, it's it's an interesting tactic for them to take, and I think they're doing it because they enjoy it. Um, yeah. is it would be so easy for them to say to disenfranchised working class voters, the, the government that you put in place to to make these positive changes has done nothing and in fact has done less than nothing and is taking your vote as granted. You know, like it would not be... Un- absolutely. Do not listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> We've we'll said it plenty of times already,
0: so they're clearly not. Listening it would not.
1: To it. it would not be difficult for them to to weirdly outflank Labor on the left because mm-hmm. Labor have moved so far to the right. And I mean, economic yeah. populism, it, it's real. You, yeah, it. you
2: wouldn't have yeah. to do much. Like you, honestly, wouldn't. I mean, and I think there are some forces in National that say that on the on the, the writing on the wall, right? Um, but you know, Judith loves racism. So she
1: really does. Yeah, she just loves it huffing <laughs> on that big old like yeah, just, bag oh, of racism yeah, right like you know, yeah because bag, there, was,
2: right? there was that review that they were there was that review with all these recommendations for how the national body could be less racist and more in line with the treaty and shit and, and, and Judith was like no no I just love it I just need some more
1: racism. <laughs> yeah yeah like it's it's it, it's so interesting to me how the goal is, is right there. You've got a, you've got a, a, a nominally left wing government, which is like remarkably Tory in its outlook and, and is really sort of, you know, now is they had such like labor got in on such an easy ride and, and they could have done anything and it would have been seen as a win. And instead they've just kind of sat on their hands and looked sad about how they can't do anything with this enormous mandate. Um, I mean, a tweet that I put up a little while ago was this isn't, a, because of course in classic divide and conquer it's, it's we've got cyclists versus nurses how many nurses does a new bridge cost uh. well for example we don't need a new bridge just liberate one of the lanes and also cycling infrastructure in South Auckland please but it's not how many nurses does a cycling bridge cost, it's how many nurses and how much cycling infrastructure does a lack of capital gains cost us Absolutely. How mu- Like it, it, we're asking the wrong questions
2: yes. but
1: Labor again, like creating creating a boogeyman that doesn't exist, like becoming convinced that instead of going with all of the people who voted for them, they have to capture this completely non existent national party or act party voter who was never gonna vote for them anyway. Like was never gonna to come to the table. This idea that they'd have to capture this mythical center ground instead of looking at the vast majority of people who they could actually help. And and National instead of going, well, hang on, there's this vast you know they could really capture a lot of South Auckland. You know a, a lot of South Auckland by going for particular issues, but instead they're smashing the racism button somehow.
2: Yeah.
1: Everyone in Parliament, well, not everybody, but the vast majority of people in in, in Parliament seem to be idiots.
2: Yeah, and I appreciate it's not particularly so.
1: controversial, but good God,
2: because it's so true. I, I loved your tweet by the way about how many <laughs> nurses and cycle infrastructure, cycling infrastructure, because that is the. That is actually the major, I think the most um, important consequence of acting like we, you know, we just have, we have to make these hard decisions between funding this good thing and that good thing is that you drive people to this the scarcity mindset, right? Hmm. Where, um, where you pick, you put movements against one another. So climate infrastructure versus healthcare, um, blah, blah, blah. And it's and it's bullshit. And we have to, and, and it, you know, it is capitalist realism, right? It's the normalization of all this wealth being held in the housing market at the top of society. And I was having to, you know, like big, like, like Oliver Twist-like, um, for for scraps of funding for cycling infrastructure and and, right. and making our healthcare system work, you but know, and, and 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 that's that's how we people become. That's priming people for reaction, right? To yep. be reactionary,
1: and it's the ultimate like centrist. Better things aren't possible. Like yes. you're told that there's this tiny pot for making things marginally more bearable, and you can spend it on. Uh, you can spend it on like one thing. You can have a couple more nurses if you're good. We'll paint, we'll paint another little bit of um, guttering green to make things better. And in the meantime, you've got this massive sort of wealth sinks and nobody like, like I think it's, yes, that centrist mindset of, of this is as good as it can possibly get with a little bit of window dressing. Like there's never any dream bigger. There's never any, why can't things be different? And it's, you know, it's the whole David Graeber thing about mm. we've have, we've have created this society. We can change it to be anything that we want, but we're constantly fed this idea that this is all there is, and it's like dare to imagine that things could be better than this. We
2: have to remember things being better. That's all I wanted to say because they yeah. used to be better, like on these some things.
0: <laughs> I think it's a really good place to wrap it up. Um, I don't think we've uh, even come close to covering everything we wanted to. But returning to those. Um, those thoughts from earlier in the cast around the way that we're divided and conquered um, by the political class uh, in in such a range of different spaces, right, Um, from some of this kind of more uh, inverted commas identity politics stuff um, to these kind of wide-reaching systemic healthcare issues uh, and the way the government messages to um, ensure that the the inertia stays um, and, and we don't move forward is really important Hey, F. Um, th- thanks so much uh, to both of you for for showing up and um, talking about your experiences. here today. Ross? If people want to um, to find you online or show solidarity with with trans rights and, and things like that, where can they find you?
1: Yeah, and what can um, they do? What can they do? I am I am back on Twitter at that bike dad. So uh, mm-hmm. feel free to feel free to get in touch and come yell at me at how I'm. <laughs> single-handedly destroying women's sports or whatever. Um, (laughs) Do not do that. Uh, If you want to be an active ally in trans rights, don't debate transphobes because, as I said, it's bad faith and there's no point to it. Shut it down the way you would QAnon or any other kind of ridiculous. Like, it's not worth the debate. It's not worth getting drawn into Mm. because it doesn't like i'm i'm going to finish this podcast i'm going to go about my day i am just a normal person like you as is every other trans person um all we want is to be recognized for who we are and and let us live our lives like that's as i said there's far bigger things to we've got a a healthcare system that's on its knees there are bigger more fundamental battles to fight and there's going to be the the BM. we didn't talk about the, the, the BMDRR bill that's gone back to um, select committee again. It shouldn't be important, but it is. I will be putting up some stuff on Twitter about what you can do to support that. But yeah, please just make trans people feel welcome and don't give transphobes what they want, which is your time and energy being drawn into pointless debate.
2: That's great advice.
0: And if people want to um, follow you, Justine, or or support, support the nurses, how can they do that?
2: Um, you can sign the petition for Fair Pay and Safe Staffing for Nurses that we can link in the bio, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, for updates, um, make sure you follow the New Zealand Nurses' Organization Facebook page. Um, and you can follow me if you want. I'm, I'm no spokesperson, um, though I, <laughs> no I have acted as such today. Um, I'm kvetchings on Twitter, which is the Yiddish word for complaining.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, thanks uh, both of you so much again for um, joining me today on One of 200. Uh, To our audience, thank you for listening. Uh, Hopefully there's a a lot for you to get your teeth into there uh, and you can give both of these fine folks a follow uh, on social media. If you've enjoyed this, uh, give it a share. uh, Let people know we're out there. You find us at oneof200.nz. Uh, you can also find articles up there as well, uh, and our Patreon if you want to throw us some spare change uh, to help keep producing uh, left-wing independent content. I recently worked out that if every one of our Twitter followers, where we've just hit 600, gave us a dollar a month, we'd start um, being able to fund independent investigations and and long-form stuff on a, on a far greater level, which would fucking love to do so give it a share uh follow us subscribe uh give us five stars in your podcast app and we'll catch you next time
1: The relentless routines the dying embers of your dreams is the lie aspirational will you die keeping your glass up full the relentless routines Dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass off full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism No, you don't hate Monday yeah.